If you're just joining us, this morning we're getting back into our study of Romans. And we ended right before Christmas at the end of chapter 5. And I thought it might be helpful for us to do a quick recap. At the beginning of Romans, Paul, in verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, does a magnificent job laying out the groundwork of our lostness as human beings, how we are dead in our trespasses and sin and and in dire need of a Savior. And then in chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through chapter 5, he unpacks the beautiful doctrine of justification by faith in Christ. In Romans 3, 23, he writes... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 4, he talks about the Old Testament hero, Father Abraham. And how even back then, Abraham was not justified by keeping the law. For one, the Mosaic law didn't even exist in Abraham's day but that Abraham was justified by faith in what God had revealed to him. In verse 3 of chapter 4, we read, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Then in chapter 5, Paul takes a deep dive into how God brings sinners, like you and me, into peace with himself, a holy God. And in verse 1, he writes, Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 8 of chapter 5, he gives us this beautiful summary of the gospel truth. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Then the last half of chapter 5, Paul compares the very first man, Adam, who brought death into the world through his rebellion, to the man, that is the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who brings salvation and has undone the work of the curse through his death on the tree. And let me just uh, clo- let me just kind of refresh our memories and look with me, if you will, on, on page uh, 942 of your pew Bible, if you have that, or um, Romans chapter 5, verse 17, and I'm going to read through the end of chapter 5 here. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came into the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased. Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
And so the message of the gospel is that of grace. That though we don't deserve it, God sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. So that through faith, if we're believing in him, God would count Christ's righteousness on us. God put our sin, the sin that you've done and I've done, on him. And so that God's righteous anger or wrath at sin was justified. And, and we might be made righteous, declared righteous before God. And I just say amen to that. The, the whole point here is just to sigh a, a breath of relief and to look up to God in worship. But now, as Paul has laid out this beautiful doctrine of justification by faith, he asks a question. And this, this is an anticipated question, but it's a question that was asked by legalists of his day... People who loved their Torah and, and did not want to embrace this gospel. And they were opposed. And so, so this same question is asked by people in our day who may have very different motives. Folks who might denigrate God's grace into an excuse for sinful lifestyles. So what is the question? The question was a logical one. Very logical question in verse 1. But what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, that, that question is logical because if you're simply following man's reasoning, you might surmise, hey, Paul has just finished saying that, that the more sin, the greater the grace. So, hey, maybe this is a license to keep on sinning. And, you know, sadly enough, in the church, uh, this is often played out. One of the, one of the most famous Southern Baptist, maybe the most famous Southern Baptist of all time, uh, was a gentleman named Bill Clinton, one of our presidents. And his worldview very much was, on Sunday, you come and you confess your sin, you get a blank slate, and then you get to go do whatever you want the rest of the week. And it's not only Bill Clinton, but millions of American Christians. I, I kind of say that in quotes, God alone knows the heart. Who feel that way? That hey, we just you know we come get a, a, a blank slate, and and then but I can keep controlling my life, and Jesus is an add-on that 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 gives me um, fire insurance, and and maybe some uh, some reprieve from my my guilt, but I get to be my own Lord. So Paul asks that question: What shall we say then? Should we just keep on sinning, so that grace may continue? And his answer in verse two. In uh, my translation is three words. It's, it, it, he answers the question, by no means. I love some of the other translations um, of, of the Greek here. New American Standard, may it never be. Another translation, of course not. Another translation, no, no. Another translation, what a ghastly thought. King James Version says, God forbid and then he follows it up with a question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we, that is those who have tasted of God's grace, who have truly put their trust in Christ, those who have been declared by God to be righteous, okay? How can that person still live in it? Because we've died to sin. So that begs the question, well, what does it mean exactly Paul saying, we died to sin. And there, there's actually a lot of theologians and commentators who 
disagree and who have puzzled over that question. Some people think died to sin means that Christians are no longer tempted to sin. <laughs> I think I, I heard a, a, a laugh in the back there. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. How many of you, and raise your hand, if this is you, Christians, are no longer tempted to sin? I'm looking. I'm looking. Okay. My hand is not up, by the way. Okay. <laughs> this idea that Christians achieve a state of sinless perfection, okay, uh, and, and our sin nature is no longer present, is not congruent with the rest of Scripture, which urges Christians to resist the fleshly desires of sin, nor of Paul's continued argument in Romans. In fact, we're going to see here in a couple of weeks in Romans chapter 7, in the very next chapter, Paul describing what I believe is his very own battle against sin as a Christian. Why would Paul urge us, even in this text, in verse 12, to not allow sin to reign in our mortal bodies if it wasn't still a temptation or, or a fight for us? So what does it mean that we have died to sin? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's what this sermon is all about. And I'm going to seek to try to kind of answer that question and unpack Paul's answer to that question in the next few verses. And, and as we do this, I just want to tell you that, that sometimes you'll find key words, right, that are repeated, where themes are kind of built around them. And I believe that in this very text, these 14 verses, we have three key words that really help us unpack Paul's train of thought. And so I'm going to frame the rest of this message around these three words. And the first word is no. We see that repeated three times in verse 3, 6, and 9. The next word is consider, verse 11. And then present, present your members to God in verses 13. We see that actually, that, that word used twice. So no, in your mind, right? And maybe deep in your heart. Consider, that's a, that's a decision you make. And then present your members, your, your hands, your, your feet, your mouth, your mind, right, to the Lord. So let's start with our first point, And that is, know that you have been united with Christ through baptism. You know, as a man thinks, so is he. What we believe and understand theologically really matters. Last year, actually two years ago on May 19th, 2018, at the very beautiful St. George's Chapel that's located inside the Windsor Castle complex, Prince Harry married uh, an American former actress, Meghan Markle. At the moment of their union, the moment that they were pronounced man and wife, Megan and Harry were united. Legally, even you could say spiritually. And the world understood that a commoner had just become royalty. And even though they've now moved to North America, and I don't really understand all the title type stuff going on right now. Whatever happens is together. Titles that are rescinded or, or 
tweaked. All of that happens together because they have been unified. Okay, she was not royalty. She became royalty when she was unified with Prince Harry. Well, according to Paul in this text, you and I, when we first believed in Jesus, at that moment of baptism by the Holy Spirit, and we're going to get into that in a minute, the moment of conversion, you might say regeneration, when the, when the Holy Spirit turned the lights on, at that moment... We were united with Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now this is an interesting text. And some have misunderstood this text to teach the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. This is what our our Catholic friends, even some of our uh, friends within the Protestant umbrella, like say the Church of Christ, believe that actually being baptized, the act of baptism itself, like water baptism... Um, physically, physical water baptism actually puts you into the state of grace with God, okay, and actually brings about um, salvation. One, I I love some of the old church creeds, and we were looking at a couple of them in our Discover Rocky class um, two weeks ago, and actually we looked at it last week as well. Um, Let me just read to you briefly the Nicene Creed, okay, The Nicene Creed was developed, by the way, in modern-day Turkey, uh, near Iznik, by the Council of Nicaea in 325 to combat heresies that were denying the full humanity and the full deity of Jesus Christ. So you'll notice uh, a lot in here about Jesus. But I want you to really pay attention uh, 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 at the very end to a statement about baptism in the Nicene Creed. I'm just going to read the whole thing. I believe in one God... The Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, before all worlds. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Who? For us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father and shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. So hear an amen. Come on, folks, this is awesome stuff right here. Awesome stuff. Amen. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. I believe one holy Catholic, an apostolic church. Let me pause for a minute. Don't get too nervous about the Catholic church part there. That's lowercase c. Universal church, that's what it means, okay? I believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. 
I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. Did I hear an amen? I heard amen. And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. I heard a young amen. Amen. All right, so here's the question. A bunch of you just said amen when I read the part about one baptism for the remission of sins. That sounds a lot to me like baptismal regeneration. Like what happened? I mean, do you have to be baptized in order to go to heaven? No. Well, what about the thief on the cross? Jesus made it pretty clear what was going to happen to him. Today I will be with you in paradise. Uh, I can tell you he wasn't baptized, but he believed. Right. So, so how do we work this out? One baptism for the remission of sins. And here's the answer. The Nicene Creed is talking about the spiritual baptism. Okay, the baptism of the Holy Spirit of which physical baptism is a picture. In Acts chapter 11, feel free to turn there. I, I've put uh, this reference in your, in your listening guide in, the, in, in your bulletin as well. But in Acts chapter 11, Peter is recounting the story of the salvation of Cornelius' household. And, and you'll remember that that Peter actually baptized Cornelius and his family with water after this happened. In verse 15 of Acts 11, Peter recounts, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Later, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one, and, he's, and he's writing to Christians here in this context, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So what Paul is talking about here is the spiritual baptism that every Christian uh, uh, that happens in every Christian's life. And, and so this has caused some confusion in, in some Christian circles where some people think, well, you have to be, you know, you get saved and you might even get baptized by water, but at a later date in your life, you have to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Okay, and yet what we see here, both in Cornelius' life, an example, okay, that moment of, of first faith, of belief, the Holy Spirit fell on him and he was baptized in the Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul teaches that every Christian has been baptized in the Spirit. Well, the baptism of the Spirit is, is the equivalent of what we might call regeneration. Okay, when you're, you're dead in your sins, right? There's no faith, right? And in that very moment that the Holy Spirit regenerates, like opens your eyes and eliminates your heart, and you cry out to God in faith for the very first time, that's when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that's when you are unified spiritually with Jesus Christ. It's when the atonement is applied specifically to you in your life experience. Okay? Now, Pastor Kent Hughes calls water baptism a shadow of the spiritual baptism that happened at conversion. Here's what he writes. He says, baptism is the shadow of what happened to us when we met Christ. We are so profoundly identified with Christ's death and resurrection that we actually did die with him and truly were raised with him 
so that we now share in his resurrection life. Now, there, there is something, I'm just going to use the word mystical about this. Okay, uh, What exactly does that mean? Well, it, it means that in God's eyes, when Jesus was dying on the cross, right, for, for your sins and for my sins, okay, we were there with him. When he rose from the dead, we too were rising from the dead. That's what Paul is saying here. Just like, if you think about it, in Adam we sinned, right? And we think, well, hey, I wasn't there. It wasn't my fault, you know? Sometimes my son, when he's reflecting theologically on the problem of evil, usually it's related to getting in trouble for something. He'll say, why did Adam have to, you know, eat that fruit? Ugh. Well, you know what? Not only would we have done that very thing if we were in Adam's place, in Adam we sinned as God sees it. And so Christ, the second Adam, we were there when he died and rose. That is what Paul is saying here. And so baptism, someone just yesterday uh, asked me, um, we were talking about my background. He's like, hey, if you were raised in a Presbyterian church, why in the world are you a Baptist pastor? And my answer, and I wasn't trying to be snarky at all. I just, just came out. I just said, it's because I read the Bible. And then I quickly stated, I have some dear friends who are Presbyterians. I mean, these are heroes of the faith. (laughs) But because of Bible passages like this, okay, that talk about baptism being a picture of death and burial and resurrection. That's why I think that immersion is the best mode of baptism. Frankly, I may be a little more generous than a lot of Southern Baptist preachers, right? Um, I, I, I would say that someone who has been uh, sprinkled, this is me, not Rocky Bay Baptist Church, but I would actually say that someone who's been sprinkled as a believer, not as a child, as a believer, clearly stating, understanding that they are being baptized, I wouldn't force them to be rebaptized, except that I have to because our Constitution says it. Okay? <laughs> but, but, Frank, so I'm a little more generous there. Okay? I think God sees the heart. And I understand that. When you look at church history, there are pictures that go way, 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 way back of John pouring water onto Jesus' head, right? But I think biblically, I think immersion is the best picture of, what, of the spiritual baptism here, of, of dying to self. There's a picture of a funeral, and there's a picture of a resurrection. You know, when, when we had our very first believer back in 2005 in Afghanistan, who said, we want to be, my wife and I, we want to be baptized. I remember thinking at that very point, uh, that very moment, sure would be a whole lot easier to be a Presbyterian right now. Inside, a little bit of water, you know, don't have to make too much of a mess. Where in the world do you go and baptize a man in Afghanistan? I mean, there's just not a whole lot of water around, okay? And frankly, you're asking for death. And that's the very point of it. We, we actually built this um, this baptistry out of an old crate that we lined with plastic. I was actually looking around for a picture uh, to send you this, to show you this morning, but, but um, filled it with well water and it looked just like a coffin. We weren't trying to make it look like a coffin, but that's what it looked like. What a picture of death with Jesus and of a funeral and a resurrection. And actually, shortly after their baptism is when the persecution began. Well, next week, we are going to be celebrating Christian baptism. 
here. Again, which is a picture. It's a, it's a shadow of the baptism of the heart that's already taken place and of the faith that our, 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 our brothers are going to be um, uh, revealing or, or testifying to you publicly that they are trusting in Christ alone, that he died on the cross for their sins and rose to walk in newness of life, rose from the dead. And so we indeed are going to be burying our friends in a sense with him in baptism and raising them up as a picture of walking in newness of life. I'd encourage you, maybe you're sitting in this room and you are trusting in Jesus, but you haven't been baptized as a believer. You ought to be baptized as a believer. This is very important biblical doctrine. In fact, I would say that if you have not, maybe you were baptized as a child before you knew Christ, and and you've come to a point where you recognize that, that you are a sinner and that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you have bowed your knee before him and are trusting in him, I, I would encourage you, and you, but you've never been properly baptized, I would encourage you to come and be baptized. Come up during our final song and, or right after the service and talk to one of the elders. We would love for you to join in being baptized and identifying with Jesus in this way. Paul continues his thought in verse 6. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be wrong, might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we, had, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So we were, Paul says, crucified with Christ. This isn't the only place that he says that. Galatians 2.20 He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We have been crucified with Christ and therefore we are now free from sin. Jesus died for our sins. He defeated the curse of sin on the cross and so By being unified with him at the cross, we died not for sin like Christ, but to sin. You see, Jesus died to sin's penalty, and so for sin's penalty, and so we have died to its penalty. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so death no longer has a claim on us, and sin no longer has a claim. We've also been set free from the dominion of sin. From its control. We're going to look at that more next week. But sin no longer controls you. So brothers and sisters, if you have the Holy Spirit, if you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit by faith in Jesus Christ, you don't have to follow the lure of sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. John Stott put it this way. And actually, um, I have to say that I don't entirely agree with Stott when it comes to baptism. He got a little bit squirrely on that. Uh, But then he writes this beautifully. He says, for us then it is like this. We deserved to die for our sins. 
And in fact, we did die, though not in our own person, but in the person of Jesus Christ, our substitute, who died in our place, and with whom we have been unified by faith and baptism. And by union with the same Christ, we have risen again. So the old life of sin is finished because we died to it, and the new life of justified sinners has begun. Our death and resurrection with Christ render it inconceivable that we should go back. It is this sense that our, self, that our sinful self has been deprived of power and we have been set free. Set free. So brothers and sisters, this week I challenge you and encourage you to simply be what you are. God says you are free. From the dominion of sin. In fact, God says, you are the righteousness of Christ. That's how he sees you. That is the definition of who you are. So simply go out and be who you are. With how you live. How you present your members to God. And that means you're free from sin. I thought of the song that we often sing um, here uh, ab- about this. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin. Lost without hope with no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in when death was arrested. And my life began. Released from my chains, I'm a prisoner no more. My shame was a ransom he faithfully bore. He canceled my debt. He called me his friend when death was arrested and my life began. Oh, we're free, free. Forever we're free. Come join the song of all the redeemed. Yes, we're free, free forever, amen. When death was arrested and my life began. Verse 9 says, we know, we know. This is the third time you, hear, you see that word know. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So it is settled. Our redemption is accomplished. And as death no longer has dominion over Jesus, sin no longer has us locked in its dungeon. So no, brother and sister, you don't have to give in to its lure. Pastor Hughes writes, Have you ever taken the time to consider the fact that you participated in the events of the cross, that you died and that you were resurrected with Christ? If not, this is prevention theology. So much of our time is spent in corrective theology, what to do when we sin. For example, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is good and necessary But reflecting upon our identification with Christ is even better because it curbs our sinning. And so that leads us to our second point this morning. That we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. That's verse 11. The point. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the opposite of defeatism, right? What you think, how you view life really matters. This is not defeatist philosophy. So here's the question. 
how do you really view sin? It's not, well, I have an area of sin in my life that I just can't shake. So I'll keep repenting. But in reality, I expect to keep doing the same thing over and over. I wonder if you ever thought that before. I'll say I'm sorry, but I plan on doing this again next week because I just can't help myself. That's not what this is. That's, that's being in bondage to sin. It's not, I actually like this one sin, so I'm going to make a closet for it. A little compartmentalized closet for that one sin. God gets the rest of my life, but I'm going to keep, this is mine. You know, my precious. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about freedom from the dominion of sin. You know, we need an accurate understanding, a realistic picture of sin in our lives. It's awful. Sin not only offends God, it's destroying humanity. It's not hard to, to trace on a, on a macro level, level the, the sufferings of our world to sin. I mean, it's not hard to trace all of the pain and death of the Holocaust to the sin of one man named Adolf Hitler, right? Uh, it's actually not hard to trace ecological disasters to the sins of greed and selfishness and often lazy stewardship, right? But what about diseases like the coronavirus or the hurricanes? We, we, we've seen several recently devastate um, people not that far away from us. Panama City Beach last year, the, the, or two years ago, the Bahamas last year. Well, you know, the Bible even places the responsibility for the cursed earth, i.e. hurricanes, etc., on mankind. So it's not hard to trace the sufferings that our, our fellow humans and, and our planet endure to man's sin. And it's certainly easy to hate on the sins of others, especially the big stuff, you know, sexual abuse, um, uh, radical terrorism. It's easy to hate on that. But the truth is, it's harder sometimes to hate our own sin. Sometimes we like, even love, our own sin. It feels kind of good. I told her, I showed her, you know, to, to enjoy that anger that we keep locked in the closet. Right? Um, so so th th we need, brothers and sisters... I encourage you to become what you are. That's sanctification, becoming, being what you are. God has declared you righteous. That's justification. So walk out your life in that righteousness. And that means daily repenting of sin. And it means taking a blowtorch to the closet. Okay? Uh, and, it, and it means looking up in faith daily. Colossians 3.1 says, If you have therefore been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Consider yourself dead to your sin and alive to Christ. I am a child of God. Sin will have no dominion over me. I am alive in Christ. That's what you need to say. Daily. Let's say it together. I am a child of God. Sin will have no dominion over me. I am alive in Christ. So go out there this week and fight and be 
that in his strength. John Stott writes, Paul calls us to rise up in rebellion against sin. Precisely because we are free from sin, we have to fight against it. And I would say precisely because we're free from sin, we can fight against it. And we can overcome it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to our third point here and our final point. And that is present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul writes in verse 12, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For God will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So what are, your, what are your members here that he's talking about? He's talking about your body parts. Specifically the, the parts of your body that do the bidding of your heart. So look at your, look at your hands for a moment. Your hands. These are an amazing creation of God. I mean, incredible. No, no, nobody, can, nobody can make something like this but God, right? Um, well, will you use these hands this week to sin against God or to serve God? Boldly, I hope. Well, what about your eyes? Will you use them to gaze at unrighteousness? Or will you use your eyes to, to look upon the creation of God and to look up and to worship the King of Kings? Think about your mind. Will you allow your mind to lead you down a path of anger or lust this week? Or will you use that member, that, that mind that God gave you, will you use it to pray for others boldly? Maybe our most dangerous and most powerful body part is our tongue. James talks about the tongue in chapter 3. He says the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. He says the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. It's pretty, pretty strong words about the danger of the tongue. And if you've been around, you know that's true. Nothing, nothing is as violent or harmful as the tongue. Will you use your tongue to tear down a brother or a sister this week? Or will you harness the power of the Holy Spirit through your tongue to encourage somebody, to lift them up, to share the gospel with somebody boldly? You have the capacity to utter words that the Holy Spirit could use to change someone's eternal destiny. Let's use our body parts and present them as members for righteousness, for God's glory. There's an old, as we move into a time of communion, 
I'd like to invite our deacons who are going to serve us to come forward. Um, and I'd invite you just to kind of close your eyes and think about these, these words. There was an old American spiritual written and sung by slaves who were living under, uh, the oppre- uh, under ungodly oppression. But this old American spiritual entered the hymn books in 1899. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And in light of Romans chapter 6, this spiritual is dead on biblical. Close your eyes and, and listen to these, these words. And maybe we should have Josh, Johnny Cash, Waddell come up here and sing them for us. But I'll just, I'll just read these for you. So close your eyes and, and think about these words. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. 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 Were you there when they crucified my Lord? I was there when they crucified my Lord. I was there when they crucified my Lord. Sometimes it causes me to tremble. To tremble. And tremble. I was there when they crucified my Lord. Heavenly Father, truly, not only was I there in a spiritual sense, according to this text, but I caused it. I'm the one who is responsible for the nails that went through his hands into the tree. It was for my sins that he took your wrath. Lord, I thank you for that great gift. But Lord, I thank you that in Christ I am free. And I am free not only from the curse of sin and from the penalty of sin, but I am free from the bondage of sin. Lord, I pray that that this week my brothers and sisters and I would walk in that newness of life. And Lord, as we stop now and as we remember that sacrifice of Christ, Lord, I, I pray that you would purify our hearts, that we would draw near to your throne in our hearts boldly because of our Lamb who took away our sin. We pray in his mighty name. Amen. Well, as we take communion this morning, um, I want to ask our musicians, just to give us a few moments of, 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 of reflection before we actually start singing, um, as our brothers, as my brothers pass out the elements. Um, because 1 Corinthians chapter 11 uh, tells us that we must be careful in the manner in which we take communion. So this is a good time for us each to examine our hearts. There might be a sin, there may be a, a, a closet of it, right, that we haven't given over to the Lord or confessed to the Lord. Let me just read to you briefly 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So I, I pray that um, you will be in a regular habit of examining yourself before you even come to church on a communion Sunday and, and making sure... In fact. Whether it's a communion Sunday or not, I hope you keep 
um, be quick to confess sin to the Lord. But here you have a moment. There may be something that, that you haven't confessed. Uh, right now is your moment. And know that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend the agonies of Calvary you the perfect holy one crushed yourself drank the bitter cup reserved for wrath completely satisfied Jesus thank you once your enemy now seated at your table Jesus thank you baptism is a picture of a deeper spiritual reality of the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, at the moment of conversion. So this communion, the, the, the bread that we take right here, is a picture of a deep spiritual reality. That is, the body of Jesus Christ on a cross 
atoning for our sins, right? Being broken on a cross, being destroyed by cruel Roman hands. But God, using that situation, that historical reality, to place on his body, place on him our sin, and, and to bruise him in our place so that we might have freedom. Um, Jesus said in, um, on that night with his disciples before he endured the cross, he, he said, this is my body. This represents his body. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for giving your body for us that we might be free from the penalty of sin and so that we may, may live in, in you and in your spirit. Amen.
Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your blood that you willingly shed on the cross for us. I pray that we would not take your sacrifice for granted this week. Lord, I pray that when I'm tempted or my, my friends are tempted by sin this week, Lord, that we would say that, that you are worthy, that your blood is, is worth it, um, of, of, of not giving in to that temptation, but striving to uh, bring uh, pleasure to you. Lord, I pray that we would truly walk in newness of life. That means that we would preempt even temptation by delighting in you. By recognizing that, that we are yours and that you are ours and that we have been united with you through faith. We thank you for this promise and this hope. And we pray in your name. Amen.